Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Ashley Berner is director of the Johns Hopkins Institute for Educational Policy and associate professor in the School of Education there. She is the author of Pluralism and American Public Education, No One Way to School. She has been with us before on the podcast, and recently she offered a brief to the United States Supreme Court on an important pending case, and that is our topic today. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, let, let, let's just get the big question first, the introductory question. What is the case? So the case is that it's particular to New England states, where it's not only Maine that has had these regulations, um, but Maine has 260 school districts, and many of them, half of them, do not have secondary schools. So what the legislature has done has to set, has said that townships that do not have secondary schools need to fund the tuition for their stu- secondary students at other schools. And those students have typically gone to other districts. They have gone to private schools. Some have even gone to boarding schools. And the kicker here, and what the case is really all about, is that the state has excluded religious schools from that. So as long as they're, quote, non-sectarian, they can get funding. If they are religious in their mission, then they cannot receive this tuition reimbursement. So, uh, and I should add that the tuition is, um, it's... Um, not it, 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 I think, falls under the existing Zellman case in the Supreme Court that because the, the choice of the school is by the parents, it is not the state endorsing a particular religion or not. Mm-hmm. It is viable from a con- federal constitutional perspective. At issue is the state's right to withhold funding in the case of religious schools. And uh, who are the petitioners? The petitioners are families who have sent their children historically to religious schools. Well, let me back up. The petitioners are families that live in townships that don't have secondary schools, who sent their children to religious schools and had to pay out of pocket or would have or or don't have the funds to send their children to the religious schools, so they send them to a state-approved school that is less desirable in their mind. So these are families that some of the children have, have graduated at this point. The initial case was filed in 2018. Um, but it's, it's a closely watched case 
for obvious reasons. Uh, Ashley, when you when you describe this, you 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 wonder what is the state of Maine doing? I mean, why are they doing this? I mean, simply to give money to parents and let them go where they want to go uh, is not can't be in any way construed to be an establishment of of religion. So what what is what is Maine? What is this all about with Maine? Do you do you see a, another motivation here? Well, first of all, my big argument and my my brief is that this is a, the cultural the cultural baggage that we carry for many many reasons that I set out in the case are and my my brief are our assumption is that education should be neutral and that religious schools can't be neutral. So that's that's part of it. But I think the state argument here is more about the diversity and inclusivity of district schools and non-sectarian schools with the specific point that some of the schools that would be funded if religious schools could be funded have very particular views about um, gender identity and sexual orientation. And it is true that those some of those schools are very explicit that they will not hire individuals who have um, who are uh, you know uh, non-heterosexual, and they do not sanction gender non-binary as a category and so forth. I have great support for legislatures such as Maryland that have school choice programs that will that forbid discrimination. I think the the point in the case is this is a legislative, there is a legislative fix for that. If the state wants to exclude religious schools on that basis, they should, they should pass a law restricting tuition to schools that don't discriminate in this way. But their categorical rejection of religious schools is problematic. From the federal constitutional aspect, so they are they are not they're they're transgressing the free exercise clause and the establishment clause. They don't need to do that to solve the diversity and inclusivity issue. There's another fix for that. Interestingly, interestingly, um, well, well, I should say the second claim that the state is making is that these schools have a biblical worldview. Now, um, I think that, that the point that needs to be made there is, and something that I make in my brief, is that schools have a worldview. Even if that worldview is tacit, even if that worldview or philosophy is long forgotten, it's impossible to design a school without establishing some kind of values orthodoxy. So the way that we, and there's, there's ample evidence for this, even in the world of sociology that talks about the implicit curriculum in a classroom, the way that teachers call on students, for example, the disciplinary code of the school, the curriculum of the school, the admissions policies or hiring policies, all of these are making normative judgments and baking them into the school. So the fact that we have biblical worldviews in some of these schools shouldn't surprise us. And in fact, most countries, 
actually champion distinctive missions in the schools that they fund. In other words, there's nothing out of the ordinary in having a pronounced value system within a school. That's actually common to all human institutions. Yeah. Uh, before we get to the specifics of your brief, how did you get interested in the case? How did you get involved here? I was invited to submit a scholarly brief by the Institute for Justice, which is running the case. And uh, I, there were many, many, many uh, friends of the court submissions, and, and mine was actually, I guess, solicited by, by, the, by the Institute for Justice. But I do, I do follow, I do follow these cases. But I, I didn't, I didn't volunteer myself. I was honored to be asked. Uh huh. Uh huh. And and the the main focus that you offer here is not legal technicalities that you often see in briefs. It is more historical arguments to provide a context for arguing against the state of Maine on this. What are the main historical arguments that you mount against Maine's exclusion? So first is to highlight the abnormality of our school system's resistance to funding religious schools. And that, so the first argument is that educational pluralism, which is a, a, a way to structure public education such that the state funds a wide variety of schools and holds them all accountable for academic results that that is in fact the democratic norm and it used to be our norm. So I unpack that history a little bit. Um, so highlighting for Americans who aren't used to focusing on this, the absolutely unusual circumstance of our public system. Number two, I make the point uh, that I mentioned earlier that district schools can't be value neutral themselves. And that's not an evil thing. It's not something nefarious that it, it, if you, once you assume, once you accept that it's impossible for institutions to be value neutral, and that's just part of human institutions, then the rational next step is we should fund a variety of institutions. And now this is really clear to me when I look at the issues about uh, critical race theory, for example, that are you know plaguing school districts right now, um, because we sanction one form of education in the district school, we we want to exert control over its ideology. So instead of the state establishing orthodoxy, whether it's banning critical race theory or elevating it, for example, I'm just using that as the most recent example, you fund a, a, a plurality of types of schools and you hold them all accountable academically. So that's, that's the second point that I make is that it's against the neutrality myth. And then finally, interestingly, the state did not make the point that district schools are superior at providing education and democratic norms. Um, I actually raise that, you know, it is a primary function of schools to create academic opportunity and more importantly, to create the conditions for democratic citizenship. And there, my last point is that when we look at the research, it isn't, there isn't a clear advantage to district schools over and against private schools of any type or charter schools of any type. And I'm very, very critical to note that 
there is much more variability within the district sector and within the Catholic sector and within the Jewish sector, for example, Hmm. than there is between sectors. So when when you look at the education research about school sectors, it is inherently divisive and competitive because we're operating from this hundred years of, you know, any, you know, one school carries the district, what the district carries public education. So any departure from that has to justify itself on the basis of superiority. I do not like that premise. I think we need to start a whole new conversation that's not competitive because as I said a minute ago, the reality is there's a lot of of um, variability within every single school sector. And we, we would do best to not diminish district schools or Catholic schools. They're, they're, they all could improve. Let's put it that way. Whoa. So, Whoa. I, you know, my last point is about this. They're, 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 the bottom line is without diminishing or demeaning any school sector, there is no evidence that district schools actually inherently do a superior job of educating children. No. None. Uh, You you talked about this 100 years of of this uh, monolithic system. What started the decline of pluralism in American schools over the course of the 19th century? The presence of millions of Catholic immigrants. Yeah. So, yep. Sorry. I mean, this is one. Of, it's, it's quite interesting. The, um, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant majority was very happy to provide funding for pluralistic school, you know, for schools that were Catholic or de facto Jewish or Lutheran or Calvinist or non-sectarian. Um, that was the norm around, you know, uh, across our country. And when Horace Mann in the 1830s wheeled out his arguments about a uniform common school and all of this kind of fell on deaf ears because for various reasons of, you know, religious freedom and local control and so forth, people didn't buy it. But then when so many millions of Catholic immigrants fled Ireland and, and, you know, Poland and Germany and so forth in the mid part of the, the 19th century, it, it, it just created a cultural um, angst for the, the Protestant majority. Mm-hmm. And so what we found is that all of a sudden, this notion of a, of, a, of a kind of uniform system of a common school gained currency. And we see this bizarre, and I think in retrospect, just somewhat horrifying, actually it is horrifying, alliance of elite political parties like the post-Civil War Republican Party and these grassroots nativist organizations like the Ku Klux Klan that allied from the top and the bottom against Catholics. And so, you know, Catholic neighborhoods were firebombed by the Ku Klux Klan as an example. And by the Republican Party used this as an issue to rally its its um, its voters after the Civil War, and so by the year 1900, we had seen legislature after legislature ban funding for quote sectarian schools. Now that was code for anti that banning 
Catholic schools because those same legislatures at the same time voted to require Protestant prayers, Protestant Bibles in yeah. the district schools. So, you know, majoritarian culture often doesn't see itself as such, right? So it felt very normal to these yeah. folks. Well, if you were Catholic or Jewish or atheist or Jehovah's Witness, this wasn't neutral. And, you know, this, this, this kind of, so, you know, the Catholic schools developed as their own, their own kind of parallel system. And um, in the meantime, across the 20th century, when my mother was in public schools in the 50s and she graduated high school in 1960, they still said, you know, Protestant prayers in school. So that helps us, the culture war of the 19th century against Catholics, heat up the Protestant ownership over district schools. And then when the Supreme Court, I think rightly secularized, the district schools starting in the 60s, Protestants, particularly Protestant evangelicals, experienced this as some kind of huge loss and grievance. And I, you know, I touch on that a little bit in the brief, but it, it really is striking that the, ni- the 19th century culture wars kind of gave rise to the 20th. And you know, the, the real sort of villains in this um, are not in my mind, not the, the people claim, you know, asking for the secularization of the district school, but the Protestants who reduced this, you know, limited funding in the first place. Hmm. So it's been a, it's, so, so the bottom line, I'll just close with this. The bottom line is our 100 years, our cultural expectations now are this heavy binary between public and private schools and our legitimizing of only the district schools. And this means that it's a battle to the death for legitimacy. And we see this in the research, we see this in education policy. I would suggest there's a better way. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You know, Ashley, it's curious that the European countries, which are so very strongly secular, and, and the churches are in retreat, uh, in, and the Christian churches are in retreat in those countries, you have the government actually supporting religious schools, and nobody, nobody bats an eye. No one feels that that's any, any kind of threat at all. Do, do you find that a curious, uh, a curious fact? It is curious, and I think the first reaction that most Americans have is, well, they don't have separation of church and state. Well, actually, the Netherlands, which has educational freedom in its constitution and funds 36 different kinds of schools, has been a secular government since something like 1798. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 and as a matter of fact, conversely, our federal constitution allows 
funding for religious schools under particular circumstances. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have massive misunderstandings on our side. And I think it's, it's also the case that religious observance is not unidirectional. So the, the, the assumption in Europe and in American sociology for a long time was that it, the secularization thesis, that as countries and governments become more industrialized, the modern world, that religious practice and observance just disappears, religious observance disappears. Well, it turns out that it's much more fluid than that. And there's all kinds of work around that. And I think the presence of, it's very interesting because I, I can use the UK as an example. The UK has been funding schools and religious schools since 1834 and secular schools since 1870. And in 19 1944, they passed a bill that required religious education in those schools. Hmm. So the way that's been interpreted is we'll fund all different kinds of schools, but you got to learn about how other people believe, too, which I think is an incredibly healthy way to do it. Um, and, 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 and the presence of so many Muslims now in England has actually led to sort of a revival of intent on the part of Anglican schools. It's been, it's been really interesting to see this happen. Catholic schools, by the way, and the, uh, the, the Anglican church is the majority provider of elementary schools. And yet for a while, they had kind of lost their way. And um, as a result of some of the, you know, the, the, the religious beliefs, of the populace, of the immigrants, and of the Catholics who run a very, very strong school system in England, the Anglican Church a few years ago started to revisit the mission of their school. Hmm. So, so my point in all of that is to say, in some, to, in some ways, yes, Europe is more secular, but in other ways, they make space for all kinds of beliefs. It's not only that they make space in their school system for Islamic schools and Catholic schools, they make space for, you know, philosophically oriented schools, for Montessori schools, for humanist schools. Um, it's, it's, it's much, they make a certain kind of space. What, so, so the argument of Maine is that uh, these religious schools are not producing good citizens with good democratic values because they're exclusionary, they, they have uh, homophobia, whatever. What does the empirical evidence show about the graduates of these religious schools and their citizenship habits, maybe we'll say? Yeah. So, so first of all, the Maine is not actually making a case about outcomes, which I thought was very curious. They were more making making a case about the atmosphere of these schools. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the research that I've seen is it, it does suggest that non-sectarian, like pri- independent schools and religious schools, but particularly Catholic schools, have tend to have an outsized positive impact on long-term civic behaviors. Hmm. And that's one of the first findings of academic and civic outcomes, frankly, um, that emerged in the research once the United States started studying outcomes. And 
and of course, it, it, it has to do with two factors. The first is a strong normative school culture where the mission's clear and so forth. And number two, uh, strong liberal arts curriculum. Those two factors have an outsized positive impact on kids, whether it's in a religious or a charter or a district school. And so these are, these are things that matter no matter what kind of school it is. I, 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 I don't know, we don't have enough data about what happens to children who are in gen, you know, gender, mi gender minorities who go to schools that are discriminatory. We don't know. Many of us are very curious about that. And of course, as I said, Maryland has passed a law that, that to participate in the voucher program, schools cannot be discriminatory in that way. Uh, have religious schools jumped on this civics evidence and, and used it to push their case? I mean, that, that sounds pretty good. Um, not sufficiently. <laughs> <laughs> not sufficiently. Not sufficiently. And, and I think, you know, as someone who cares about all the schools, I work with districts. I work with schools across the country that are districts. These are our primary partners. There is a lot of good going on in these schools. And I would never want to say that uh, religious schools are inherently superior because sometimes that's absolutely untrue. So when you really look under the hood, you find what most OECD countries find, which is that all schools have for improvement. And that's our job is to help all schools improve in the things that matter, period. I'm very, very interested and helping our country move past diminishing and demeaning entire sectors of schools. It just doesn't hold up. In the aggregate, yes, schools that have distinctive missions and purposes and particular Catholic schools that have particular missions to the common good and so forth have very good civic outcomes. So, uh, Ashley, let me ask you uh, about another myth that you referred to, apart from the neutrality myth. The achievement myth, what is that? So the achievement myth is that only uh, district schools can really educate democratic citizens. And it has two parts. The one is about civic outcomes and the other is about the opportunity and academic outcomes. And I think what's tricky here is it's a, it's a myth. It, the, the myth goes something like this. Public schools are the great, you know, equalizer. Public schools create opportunity for students. Public school, you know, that's how the narrative goes. Now, public schools can and should do those things. All schools can and should do those things. And when we actually look at the data on outcomes, which, again, the state of Maine doesn't really talk about. It should, but it doesn't. Um, we, we, we don't find an inherent advantage to district schools in academic and civic outcomes. We find rather that if there's an advantage, it lies slightly on the non-public school effect. Now, this kind of research is very tricky because you can't simply say, uh, look at that you can't use the outcomes as a blunt instrument you can't say for example the children from phillips exeter did better on the sats than students from inner city baltimore that's not a fair comparison 
because they're not the same kinds of students. They're students from very different backgrounds, students from very different families and experiences and so on, to actually discuss the school effect and to isolate that. You actually have to control for certain factors, like the, the income of the family, the education of the parents, the presence of books in the, in the home, all these things. Only when you're dealing with similar students can you make statements about the school effect. But it can be done. And where it is done, there's some, some interesting things that we see. So one of my favorite studies is by David Giglio, who he's done quite a few studies of tax credit programs in Florida. And uh, he was able to, to control for family background and so forth and found that students who means tested, that means low income students who received a tax credit sanctioned by the state to attend a private school did better than they would have had they stayed in the district school. And the kids who stayed in the district school actually did better. And, and it's not, it, it, there, there are all kinds of mechanisms here, but, 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 the, but the point is that it, it, it can work really well for all students. And there, again, there are many research reasons for this, but, but, but Matt Chingos, who's at the Urban Institute, studied the same group of kids, the scholarship recipients with tax credits in Florida, and he found that they were more likely to attend college and to persist in college. So, I mean, these are just a, a few of the many, many data points that, that, that we can pull together to say there is no evidence that providing high-quality options for low-income kids can benefit all kids. Right. Uh, final question, Ashley. Who's going to win? Oh, I would. I, I, I will be listening into the arguments on December eighth. Yeah. Bated breath. Yeah. Bated breath. I I thought that Missouri schoolyard playground yeah. case really put 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 the court made very clear you you can't do this. If it, but but we'll see. Well, we'll see. Well, I I think I think that that it's probably it's 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 probably a matter of how narrowly the court will rule. Because if you look at the Trinity Lutheran decisions, that you know it was very, very narrow. There are, that, that this court is not likely to make sweeping judgments that overthrow, you know, the Blaine Amendment, for example. Yeah. So I, I, I will be listening there for how wide, how wide-reaching the, the arguments go. Yeah. Okay. We will see Ashley Burner. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.